We are in Ezekiel. We're going to look at chapter 16. And we're taking a number of verses tonight uh, because uh, it's in the form of an illustration or parable that doesn't need a whole lot uh, of explanation, uh, the verses themselves. We'll talk about their application, of course, and all that, but you'll see what I mean. And uh, it's a pretty, uh, as far as the Bible's concerned, it's a pretty graphic uh, section of Scripture, so uh, bear with me. Uh, that's why I've titled it, The Lady is a Tramp. Uh, I love it. It makes me feel good, you know. I mean, let me have that at least, please. Anyway, Elliot Spitzer's former Manhattan madam is running for the seat uh, he vacated during his antics with her hookers. Uh, she's running for governor of New York. One of the questions Sean Hannity asked her uh, was whether or not she would want her daughter to become a prostitute. Unhesitatingly, she said, yes, if that's what she chose. Now, I find that incredible to believe. But to the extent she might actually be telling the truth, it shows just how base our personal morality can become. And we're going to encounter something like this in this chapter. The Lord is going to compare the Jews to a prostitute. Worse than a prostitute, really, because at one point, he's going to point out that she doesn't even ask for any payment. Instead, she pays bribes to those with whom she commits her immoral acts. The Manhattan Madam didn't start off that way, and neither did the nation of Israel. In an emotional and graphic parable, the Lord told Ezekiel how his beloved nation had sunk to such a low place. And so let's begin in verses 1 and 2. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man... Cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Chapter 16 is the longest chapter in Ezekiel. By itself, it is longer than six of the minor prophets. It was intended to cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Illustrations, comparisons, parables, metaphors, similes, and those kinds of things, they're a powerful way of communicating truth. They can cause you to see the extent and effect of a truth. I mean, it's... It's one thing to say uh, to the nation of Israel that they had sinned. It's another to say, you're like an adulterous wife. No, wait a minute, you're like a prostitute. No, you're like a prostitute that pays others. Uh, and then you, it kind of hits you in the face in a very different way. Now, the Lord wanted the Jews to know the extent of what he calls their abominations. I want to pause just for a moment to discuss this word abomination because it's become a point of debate for those who profess Christianity but promote and unbiblical sexuality. Usually they point out that other behaviors in the Bible which were forbidden are no longer considered sinful. I'm only going into this because you're going to encounter this sooner or later. Uh, you're going to tell somebody, oh, this you know, sexual sin is an abomination, and they're going to say, well, wait a minute, Do you, you know, the word abomination doesn't mean that, and there are other things that were abominable but are okay, so why is this? It's, it's a point of contention. Uh, 21st century Christians are free to have tattoos, eat shrimp, lobster and pork, or meat cooked rare, wear polyester cotton blends, seed their lawns with grass mixture, and get their hair cut. Those are some things that were prohibited in the Old Testament that are, that you, you know, you don't look at. If, if your neighbor is using a mixed lawn seed, you don't go out and pick it and say, you're an abomination to the Lord. How dare you? Uh, and a lot of us wear I don't know if I wear a polyester cotton blend, but we, we do wear blended clothing, which was also prohibited. And so 
these people put sexual behaviors, deviant sexual behaviors, in that same category. Now, the simple answer to them is that we distinguish between God's ceremonial laws and His moral laws. The ceremonial or the ritual laws that deal with things like dress and diet and days are no longer binding. God's moral laws are, God's moral laws never change. God's ceremonial laws do change, have changed. God's moral laws never change. The important distinction between these laws is reflected in the Old Testament penalty for breaking them. Disobedience to the ceremonial laws resulted in what was called uncleanness. Breaching the moral laws resulted in what is called death. (laughs) So it was a little bit of a difference there. Uh, God left no ambiguity in his description, for example, of homosexual acts. He says they are an abomination in the sense that we're talking about. Now, back to our text. The illustration begins in verses 3 through 6 where the nation of Israel is compared to an abandoned infant. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth, verse 3, and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. And your father was an Amorite and your mother's a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your own blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. Now there's an expression theologians use and it goes like this. Parables should not be made to walk on all fours. It means that we can get too deep into the details of a parable or an illustration and miss the overall point. Every detail of every illustration doesn't have a particular meaning. Uh, Jesus in the New Testament, sometimes he gives you the exact meaning of certain points in his parables, but you have to be careful sometimes. So we're not going to be looking for an exact representation of every word in this illustration. For example, God wasn't giving us the lineage of Abraham and Sarah when he said Israel was born from an Amorite and a Hittite. These were the prominent people in the land of Canaan at the time Abraham was called to follow the Lord and Israel was born as a nation. Think back on Abraham. He was a wanderer, a pilgrim, a stranger in the land. He'd been promised a land but never occupied it. From the world's perspective and viewpoint, it looked as though he had been abandoned as an infant in a field. Imagine what a crazy thing it was to be Abraham, whose name meant the father of many nations. Really? How many children do you have? For a long time, none. Okay, how many kids do you have now? One. Well, hi, father of many nations. Oh, listen to this guy. You've got to get a load of this guy. And, and, you know, and then you talk to him some more and he says, well, yeah, God's promised me you know, my descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea and, and all this land belongs to me. Wow, this guy is a screw short. You know, he's, he's not thinking straight. And in, in, in the sense that, you know, God, it looks like God started to build a nation and then abandoned him in the field without ever really giving him the land. The New Testament says he was a pilgrim and a wanderer, and a stranger looking for a, uh, you know, a city whose builder and maker was God. And so very interesting uh, uh, kind of an illustration. But God had said live and he did live. Verse 7. 
I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were still naked and bare. I warned you. This would correspond historically to the time of the patriarchs, to Isaac and Jacob. The nation grew, but still from the world's point of view, it owned nothing of its promised land. Verse 8, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. Now, keeping with the illustration, this depicts a marriage. Historically, with the period of the exodus and the giving of the law to Moses, that is the covenant that's being alluded to. Verse 9, Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. Washings with water, washing off blood, anointing with oil. These represent the ceremonies and sacrifices of the tabernacle. Three of the four materials mentioned in verse 10 were prominent in the construction of the tabernacle. And so you see what God is doing. He's telling the history of the nation of Israel, but he's doing it in a very graphic, metaphorical way, saying it's as if you were an abandoned infant and then began to grow and mature. And all along the way, I was there to bring you to maturity. And then in verse 11, I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. If you're following the history of Israel, you know what this is talking about. These uh, are the splendid kingdoms of David and then his son Solomon. David, who united the nation for the first time the, and, and, and also for the first time the Jews conquered Jerusalem and had it as their capital. And then Solomon, who brought Israel to a zenith of glory that was celebrated throughout the known world. While we're here... Can you see in this illustration your own story as a believer in Jesus Christ? The human race, all of us, are described as being born, how? Dead in trespasses and sins. We're born spiritually dead, but physically alive and soulishly active. We're born into the world, the world of fallen men. The world we might describe of the Amorite and the Hittite. Thus, it is as if we are helpless, abandoned in a field. We're in our own blood, as it were, doomed to die in our own sins. But the Lord says live, and He gives us life by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is described even as a bridegroom's love for his bride. We're given splendid things, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We're king's kids, promised a far greater inheritance, uh, inheritance rather than any of our spiritual ancestors. And so... Uh, though this is obviously speaking of the nation of Israel, uh, as a child of God, I can find myself in this story. Uh, born in my own blood, as it were, uh, but then covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and called to life. 
Now, how I wish this story ended in verse 14 with the splendor of Solomon's kingdom, but it doesn't. We're just getting started. Verse 15, but you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You've also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. Also my food, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you. You set it before them as sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord God. Now the seeds for idolatry were sown in Solomon's reign. Immediately after he died, the kingdom split in two. Ten tribes to the north called Israel. Two tribes in the south called Judah. First Israel, then Judah began to go after the religions, after the idols of the surrounding nations. Uh, and, and all of that which God had given them all of their wealth, all of their splendor, all of their beauty, they started to uh, give to these other uh, gods and goddesses. Their behavior was compared to that of an adulterous wife playing the harlot. Spiritual adultery is how God saw it. Uh, and and uh, he, he's just uh, very, very graphic about it. Verse 20, Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up by causing them to pass through the fire? Molech, infants and children were offered to him as sacrifices by the Jews. I've described uh, what he looked like and how that worked before, but that's, that's enough for now. You know, I, I was thinking about this and I wrote down this sentence, a little idolatry goes a long way. Uh, I'm sure that during the time of Solomon or at the beginning of the divided kingdom, had you predicted that the Jews would participate in child sacrifice, they would have found that abhorrent. They would have said, no, that's never going to happen. We're not doing anything like that. We're just dabbling over here. We still love the Lord. We're at the temple. We're worshiping. We're just checking out some little gods and goddesses over here. We're just getting to know our Assyrian neighbors. We're, we're just getting along. But the truth is, stray just a little and you will end up where you never dreamed possible. That's, the, that's the, really the warning here. You know, they didn't, at the, at the zenith of Solomon's kingdom, they didn't say, yeah, you know, we're tired of this. Let's kill our children. Let's go after Molech and kill our children and burn them alive on the arms of, of Molech. No, they, they ended up there by straying. Verse 22, And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and struggling in your blood. In other words, they had forgotten the grace and the mercy of God. Verse 23, Then it was so after your wickedness, Woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. 
You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians, because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor, Chaldea. And even then, you were not satisfied. The gods of Egypt and Assyria and the Chaldeans, which is a reference to Babylon, became prominent in their later idolatry. As you know, Assyria eventually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel after the southern kingdom of Judah tried to ally with Egypt, the Chaldeans would come for a third and final siege of Jerusalem and destroy it. Ezekiel is writing, as you remember, in between the second and the third siege. Now, there's a couple of things at least to notice here, obviously more, but two that we want to uh, key in on right now. The non-believing nations are said to be ashamed of Israel's lewd behavior. Uh, sin is worse when it is practiced by a believer. Sin is worse when it's practiced by a believer. Non-believers look upon the believer and they feel ashamed that the believer is sinning. After all of our testimony and all of our sharing and all of that, it seems like the non-believer knows that we're blowing it more than we do. Uh, and, and so it's an, it's an interesting thing. And then secondly, no matter how much they borrowed from the pagans, the Jews could never find satisfaction. Sin never ultimately satisfies. A scripture says that it's pleasurable for a season, obviously, but it never ultimately satisfies. Uh, and the Jews were finding that out. And especially for the believer, it leaves you empty. In one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Captain Barbosa, who at the time is under a curse, described that because of the curse, he couldn't feel a thing. Not wind, not woman, not food. The quote goes like this. Drink would not satisfy, food turned to ash, and all the pleasure in the world couldn't slake our lust. And, and that's a really... They, the movie makers didn't mean it this way, but it's an interesting parable of the believer in sin. Uh, all the pleasure in the world couldn't slake lust. Lust is a, a terrible thing. It, it, it can't be satisfied. Uh, I think the devil fools us sometimes, tries to fool us. He says, give in a little bit to your lust, feed it a little bit, keep it satisfied, uh, but it can't be satisfied. It just continues to, uh, it, it continues to, to grow and grow and grow. Uh, and so... The Jews, no matter how much they were, once they started down that path, uh, they kept bringing in more and more and more idolatry, more and more and more wickedness, until they were sacrificing their own children in these pagan rituals. And so in verse 30, How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. You erected your shrine at the head of every road, built your high place in every street, you are not like a harlot because you scorn payment. You're an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to harlots, but you made your payments to your lovers and hired them to come to you from around for your idolatry or for your harlotry. 
You're the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot in that you gave payment, but no payment was given you. Therefore, you are the opposite. The title adulterous wife would have been a compliment at this point. They were beneath even the harlots in that they received nothing in return for their abominable acts. It was even worse than that. No one solicited them. They solicited the idolaters. They paid bribes to them to commit their immoral acts. It's one thing to tell someone that God will be displeased with his or her sin. It's another to give them an example by saying, it's like your spouse paying others to have sex with them, or it's like you murdering your children, burning them on the arms of a molten hot idol of Molech. I don't think that counseling would go very well. You know, somebody says, you know, you come in, they say, you know, I've been doing this and I'm committing sin and I know I need to repent, but it's so hard because I'm... And, so, and then to look and say, you know, do you have a family? Sure. you have some children? Sure. So you, you might as well be burning your children on the molten hot arms of Molech right now. Well, how dare you? I love my children. Uh, but that, that, that's where sin leads. It destroys families. It wipes everything out. When I was a kid, my dad drove me into a neighborhood in San Bernardino called Waterman Gardens. It was a notorious area for gangs and crime. You never, ever went there. Not by yourself, not with a group, not with the police. You never went there unless you wanted to die. (laughs) The people were poor and violent. My dad wanted to show me how I would end up if I started doing drugs and such. Well, I'd already started down that road. I thought my dad was an idiot. I believed I could drink and do drugs and have sex and still maintain everything else I wanted to in terms of outward success. I was never going to end up in Waterman Gardens. Along the way, I saw other lives ruined. Never thought it could happen to me. I was in control of my out-of-control behavior. Then when my life was ruined and I didn't even know it, when I was struggling literally in my own blood, you might say, left to die eternally, then the Lord came along and He said, Hey, live. He washed me in the water of His Word, cleaning off the blood by His own blood shed for me at Calvary. He anointed me with the oil of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now I'm espoused to Him, promised every spiritual blessing now and to be united with Him in a glorious eternity. Stray but a little, and I and each of us can end up so far from the blessing of the Lord, we don't really even believe right now it's possible. We think, well, yeah, I'm doing this and I shouldn't be, but it's not that bad. I can quit whenever I want. And, you know, I would never, I would never end up over here. Let's walk in the ways that please the Lord. Let's keep turning to God from the idols that are all around us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. After all, drink will not satisfy, food turns to ash. All the pleasure in the world cannot slake our natural lust. The Lord alone is our satisfaction. I love that scripture and so do you. As a deer pants after the watering brook, may our soul thirst for him. Amen? Amen. All right.